Coming up this week, we discuss the T20 World Cup first round, Namibia's charge with the help of David Visa, news from around the globe, and Nick chats to Tristan Lavalette of Forbes. And if you're a patron of Emerging Cricket, guess what? You have access to an extended version of this week's show. If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash emergingcricket. Enjoy yet another EC pod. Welcome again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast, wherever you are listening around the world. I'm Daniel Beswick, and with me are the EC Pod regulars, Tim Cutler and Nick Skinner. Tim, how's things going in Vanuatu? I see you took a trip to Tanna and saw a lovely volcano as part of your little journey. Tell us all about that. Well, it sounds like I don't need to talk about it now, but sorry everyone, I will. Look, I've, I've had a pretty good life and uh, travelled to amazing places with amazing people. I've got to say the last week is, is right up there. I was uh, taken around by a well, one of the sponsors of Vanuatu Cricket, who's originally from Tanna, and shown all the sites with the volcano. There's a blue cave there, if anyone wants to Google that, one of the most amazing things in the world. Then toured up the, the north end of the island by the landowner who owns the same area that the blue cave's in, up further than I'm told that any tourist has gone. So, special perspective. Um, got to see custom ceremonies. I, I, I've, I was welcomed into well his name's walter's uh, village with a, a chief's welcome I'm, I'm told and had the uh, traditional dancing in front of me and i um i drank traditional carver and that's the carver that is chewed has to be chewed by a virgin wow and then into um yep little piles which is then squeezed through the uh, the leaf into um your cup and uh yep so that was the friday and two days later um this will be I don't know if it's sort of grade cricket or worthy, but the Prime Minister is also from that area and um, I made his acquaintance and he uh, invited us to his Nakamal and he introduced me to the crowd and it, it seems he's been given some incorrect information. It sounds like he's been told that I've actually actually uh, played cricket for Australia and uh, <laughs> test cricket at that. So, look, um, we all know how good my Bislama is. So he's talking Bislama and he talks about Tim and... You know, boss blog cricket and blah, 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 from Australia. And then I hear, test cricketer for Australia. Test cricketer. And he looks at me and says, Tim, how many, how many matches did you play? <laughs> so you had to put him right? Look, I, I, got, I got a lot of sun during that time, but I, I went redder. And uh, Walter next to me just said, oh, a few, a few, a few. <laughs> so, so I just looked up and went, oh, a few. And he goes, a few. And then back into it to telling the crowd about <laughs> me being in Vanuatu and so a lot of things have happened in the last week, including dinner with the Prime Minister. That It's only in Vanuatu, I've been told. But an amazing trip. And as you said, yes, I did go up to the, to the edge of a, a live volcano that's been erupting continuously for hundreds of years at sunset was amazing. So yeah, it was um, five days I won't forget. It's sort of sounding like Tim's Vanuatu hour again. But um, no, that was... That was amazing. So, and then apparently Santo. Well, T- Tanner is one of the, the southernmost islands of Vanuatu's 83 within the archipelago that makes up Vanuatu. Uh, Santo is an, another beautiful one that uh, that we've got an office there as well that uh, I'm told that I need to go to. So, so who knows what the prime minister and I will get up to on Santo. Santo's nice as well, can confirm. Very glad I got my eyes checked and got glasses before my trip to Vanuatu and that volcano because it was an unforgettable experience and I'm just glad I could see it. Moving on, Nick, as 
an esteemed member of the EC pod. You've got another interview lined up later in the show. Uh, apart from that, what have you been doing, I know, between yourself and, and me, locked down here in, in New South Wales? The cases continue to skyrocket, but we're making hay while the sun shines in terms of emerging cricket and everything that goes with that. Yeah, a bit of an anticlimax, really. I haven't been up any volcanoes recently. Um, I thought the PM story was better, but no, let's stay with the volcano. That's <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. Let's jump into the T20 World Cup. It is around the corner, fellas. We're not too far away from it now. A few teams making some last-minute preparations and a couple of team bolstering moves, which we will talk about in a second. But let's just jump quickly into the fixtures that were announced for the first round and some other parts of that first round group that need to be brought up because I don't think it's really been publicized in many places what's actually happening once those top two teams from each of the groups are established. But looking first to the Oman group, that's group B in the first round. Oman will get to play at home as part of that. They host Papua New Guinea on the 17th of October. The other match in that group, Bangladesh taking on Scotland. And then looking at the other side of the equation, Group A, Ireland and the Netherlands kick off that group in Abu Dhabi with Sri Lanka playing Namibia. We have talked a little bit about the groups and how they've been made up. And and we might bring that back up at some point. But I think something that is worth noting is that no matter what, if Sri Lanka and Bangladesh reach the top two of their respective groups, they will automatically become A1 and B1 of those groups and they will slide into the Super 12 round accordingly. That was per an ICC media release. We haven't seen too much information around explaining that around in most parties. In fact, a number of people, even well established in the game, are still learning of this fact, probably as we talk about it right now. But to you first, Tim, what do you make of something like this? I'm flummoxed. As you intimated before, that there are lots of people that did know about this or don't understand. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. You know, the point about tournament cricket or, you know, football or whatever is that you enter the tournament, you know, you're, you're seeded and you play games according to that. And then you're into the tournament. You know, you go according to the tournament plan, you win, you lose, you're seeded on your positions within it. To say that, oh, look, some like Namibia, oh, you know, congratulations, you've gone through undefeated, you've beaten two full members, but you're going to be ranked two because Sri Lanka came through as a ranked one group. I don't get that. You know, It makes no sense whatsoever that you would then have an additional seeding on top. Like The whole notion of a first round is not a great one anyway, and they're abolishing it after this World Cup, and why they couldn't have done that straight away and gone straight to the 20-team format or a 4x4 or format for this is, again, another question that we can ask another day that we'll, there'll be no answers to, but I, it doesn't make any sense so they're positioned in these groups because they were the lowest ranked four members and they fall back to this group great and they need to finish one or two to go through the next group and therefore they should be i don't know why or what this serves and unless they're just trying to make sure they're in different groups it makes no sense to me whatsoever because all you're doing there is taking away jeopardy or at least I know every team will say they're going to go out there and try to win every game exactly the same way but to know if you're going to the last game of the group and it's like well it doesn't matter if we win or lose because we've already got first place sewn up and that is not what tournament cricket is about tournament cricket is about winning as many games as you can to put yourself in the best position possible whether you're in a group with a uh, round robin as, as this is or if you're in a, a sudden death situation you know, obviously you're trying to do as best as you can but it just really flies in the face of what tournament cricket is all about yeah it's, it's a strange well it's not that strange really when you, you think about the way the ICC often makes these uh, decisions and, and doesn't really tell anyone and then we're all sort of left scratching our heads about how and why they've they've come to certain conclusions about the way tournaments work, but I, yeah, it, it is odd. 
But I guess the only sort of uh, theory that I've seen is from our friend Bertister Young, who thought that maybe the logic was that they'd prefer a dead rubber in the last game to teams deliberately trying to lose because they're trying to get into a, a more favourable group. But, I mean, even that, you know, neither of the main event groups are particularly lopsided, certainly not lopsided in the way that the preliminary groups are. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it is quite odd. Uh, I mean, possibly you could make the case it's something to do with fans, but then are they even having fans at this World Cup? Yeah, I don't know. Well, fans, like, okay, if you're looking at someone from Bangladesh or Sri Lanka pre-booking their tickets, look, if you're a Sri Lanka fan at the moment, you're not pre-booking your tickets to go to the second group. <laughs> I I'm at a loss. I don't I don't actually know what purpose this serves. Only to create uncertainty in the, the the final games in the first groups where teams are not just thinking the best thing to do here is to win. So yeah, don't know. Maybe Burtis is is right there, but I'd love to get an answer on that. Just like one of those little footnote things at the bottom of I think it was the last thing on the press release as well about oh by the way um, yeah slip it out on a Friday night the bottom of the press release. At least it wasn't on Origin night, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be perfect we're just going to send it out at you know 9.30pm yeah I, I don't know Bez um, to answer your question I, I, I don't know all this does is sort of takes a little gloss off this first round that the jeopardy for Bangladesh and Sri Lanka is less uh, because they're guaranteed a first position with fewer wins I, I suppose the consolation in all of this is no matter what each group is going to be incredibly tough no matter which one you're qualifying into it's just how we get there that probably raises the most questions and looking again at group Bay. I can't get over how stacked that is and we'll talk about Namibia and, and bolstering their stocks in a couple of moments but that group Sri Lanka are no morals to progress into the next round of that tournament we know that they've got a number of internal issues to start with on the field they haven't been crash hot and the results suggest that they've won three T20 internationals in the last nine I think that's just this year alone the other group is wide open Bangladesh would probably look stronger than, than Sri Lanka uh, in comparison on the other side but again as we get closer we'll we'll start looking into that with some more depth but let's talk about Namibia because I think Namibia are the dark horse to progress from their group everyone looking at Ireland and the Netherlands is potentially the team to to finish first or second in that group but I think we can safely say that Namibia are more than a chance of progressing and these results against Zimbabwe emerging players is anything to go by uh, I think it's only been proved once again emphatic in their in their tour against the Zimbabwean emerging players at home as well JJ Smith once again coming through with the bat they're not even really testing him with the ball at the moment we know that he had a couple of issues with his knee I think a little bit earlier in the year Herard Erasmus coming out and scoring runs as well but Nick it looks to be a pretty strong side and a number of guys put their hand up for selection it might have even been a, a chance for some more depth to be tested. Yeah, it's interesting to see um, the Zimbabweans here look really completely outclassed. And uh, as we said last week, I I think Zimbabwe full strength would not necessarily be winning these games either because Namibia have a really strong side at the moment. I don't know. I I was just wondering how useful it even was for them to be having a yeah a Zimbabwe emerging or uh, you know second eleven when they're just beating them this easily. Could they have? been better off saving a bit of money and doing an interest squad thing or or maybe going to South Africa and playing some provincial teams. I don't know. But um, the green kit that the Zimbabweans are using, the sort of alternate strip to the usual red one is quite nice. I liked that. But yeah, yeah, I I don't know if... um you know, it's not. It is nice seeing uh, JJ Smith hitting big ones over over long on as he does, but it, it, it's sort of I don't know how useful it necessarily is 
for Namibia, you, you, you would have sort of hoped that they could get some stronger opposition. Um, I think looking at head to the qualifiers, I mean, I mean the first round, sorry. Um, <laughs> well, that was somewhat Freudian. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it is a qualifier. We'd... Qualifier with preordained uh, number one qualifiers. So. <laughs> Semi-qualifier, yeah. We're qualifying for second place. But yeah, looking ahead to that tournament... They've only got eleven slots, and they've got a lot of guys who've been putting their hand up. You know, you mentioned Erasmus uh, Smith can hit, of course. We've got uh, Zane Green at the top of the order, keeping. Craig Williams looks to be in handy form as well. David Visa is an interesting story. We, we might get to that in a sec, but he, you know, the ex South Africa all rounder has has mentioned that he's qualified through his father, I believe. So that's another person to get in there. And then looking at the bowling side of things. Nicole Lofty-Eaton had a good outing. Bernard Scholz, of course, left-arm spinner. And this is the thing, you know, <laughs> how are we going to fit in all these bowlers when you, you've got guys coming down to number eight, number nine, who can smash it? Are you going to go batting heavy? Are you going to have a few more bowlers to balance out your explosive batters? I don't know. Like In the third T20, they had a bit of a batting wobble and, and that kind of, to me, it looked a bit like Against a stronger opposition, they might have a tendency to either score 200, which they did, 250-odd against the the poor old Zimbabweans in a T20, but they might also just implode and the way they're going. They're a bit of an England sort of approach to the white ball game where they just go and go and go. So they they might get bowled out very cheaply. So that'll be interesting to see how they weigh that up. But yeah, who's going to fit into this squad now that David Vies apparently is being fast-tracked into it? Although, yeah, I haven't been that impressed with what I've seen of him in franchise cricket. It's a very interesting one, and I would love to know what the dynamic is when he gets added into the uh, WhatsApp group chat and just sort of announces himself as a Namibian player. He qualifies through his dad. A player that has seemingly fallen off the radar is Christy Villion and he might be the man that makes way from that qualifying team that was so strong throughout 2019. JP Cotts has also retired as well so there are a couple of spots seemingly up for grabs in comparison to their 2019 team but they're oozing with talent and there's a number of young players looking to, to step up as well and David Visa, I think Nick you and I were almost in the same vein of, of thought when we thought oh is this just another ex-South African international looking to kind of prolong an international career. But talking to a couple of people who have potentially watched him a little bit more, they seem very high on someone like Visa coming in and and him slotting straight into that team. I saw a quick info article a couple of days ago saying that he will debut at the T20 World Cup. Well, he needs to get picked first of all, but it's looking more so like that's going to happen. Tim, just a question without notice. What do you think the dynamic would be for someone like that just being thrust into a, an international team like that. I'm, I'm guessing there's probably an ongoing relationship already. He's probably spoken to, uh, to Pierre de Bruyne at, at length, as well as Erasmus and a number of the players. What's the relationship like in that situation, do you think? Well, he's a globe-trotting franchise professional these days. So I think for him, now we're not saying this team is anything like a franchise, but I think he's going to be very well-versed and accustomed to getting to know people quickly that he's not so played alongside of for a long time. But I think that will really help him embed himself early, meaning that if he plays for them again, and he's hoping for Namibia's sake that he's that he's able to, that he then carries it on further. I think that's the advantage, someone with his story, and maybe some will see it as a negative that he's sort of a globe-trotting, I think to, to some is, is what you were talking about, perhaps an anonymously so to those who may not seem beyond the limelight players of the, the Sammies and whatnot who get a lot of the attention but he's actually just going about his business and doing it well he'll just slot in and give what he can in that environment because 
you don't need to be the loudest to be the most respected and you know look at Erasmus and his captaincy and, and we've seen him up close and the way that he goes about his business he doesn't need to be the loudest on the field and I think Fise after I, he played in the, the T20 Blitz as well that was another another tournament that he came on on pretty short notice there and again just slipped in and, and did his business so honestly I don't think we'll see too much of a difference and you, you mentioned Zane Green there earlier you know he was out of the team for a while as well so it's good to see him come into a bit of form and, and having the gloves I think the conundrum there would have been the JP Kotzer St. Green story or question and, and who would have been in there but do we know what happened with JP you know after seeing him belt Hong Kong around in, in 2019 and to, to read his retirement you now I, I, he talks about playing for Namibia for nine years but he's still in his 20s isn't he he has been around a long time in the national setup I do know that uh, his son had not been in the, in the greatest of of health and maybe he was looking to to spend more time on on that front but it was an odd time for a lot of that to happen as well you know a matter of weeks out before a world cup we can only really speculate but you know you would look at the way that they qualified and and the the, the cynic would be that maybe he got a tap on the shoulder and said look it it was probably time for someone else to take that slot we know that when uh, when Uganda came and toured there the way he batted was probably not the best for the situation um, that were that was at hand for, for Namibia at times there. He did seem like a compulsive sweeper and he found himself um, dismissed a couple of times, probably trying to do a little bit too much at the top of the order. But we know how good he can be at his best. We saw it for ourselves at World Cricket League too, Tim, in probably one of the greatest innings I think we'll, we'll see, especially in, in that tournament. And it was a sight to behold. Um, and talking about Visa as well, Ruben Trumpelman is another guy coming over from the South African system as well. So it's not as if he's the only one to make this jump in, in recent times for, for Namibia. Just as a, a final question, and we talked about Visa's franchise experience. By the end of this tournament, how many of these Namibian guys do you think will be knocking on the door for franchise teams? I mean, this is pretty much the highest level of the game for them. And we know that they're capable of achieving great things individually. I look at players like Erasmus and JJ Smith and even someone like Bernard Schultz as well with with his left arm orthodox. Nick, a lot of these guys will be putting their name up in the shop window for franchise selection. So from an individual standpoint, whilst the, the team goals are ultimately the most important, do you think that a number of these players can actually make a real name of themselves afterwards in the tournament's aftermath and looking at, at, at where they can go after that? Yeah, and that, that's one of the great benefits of having a more inclusive World Cup is that, you know, even if these teams don't <laughs> don't win the World Cup or don't make the semifinals or whatever, individuals from these teams can have a, a much better opportunity to show the world what they can do. And, you know, we saw Ryan Tendiskata, obviously he was he was a, a county pro for a number of years before he was playing with the Netherlands, but he, he did use that time with the Netherlands to you know get a lot more attention and, and I think he got a lot more franchise gigs after that spectacular World Cup in, in 2011 uh, where he scored I think it was three centuries pummeled England around but yeah basically playing a good innings against one of the major teams is you know probably the best way still to put your name out there for a franchise side and uh, we, we talked to Jared Kimber a, a few months ago in terms of how franchise uh, scouting works or doesn't work and how why they don't look for associates players as maybe good value and basically no one's watching the games and and just going back to the first round slash qualifier thing I think that's one of the problems with having this as a separate pseudo qualifier before the main event is that you know the the eyes of the world are not really going to be on this much as we would like them to be and much as you know the ICC insists that it's part of the main tournament 
you know, the, I think the IPL finishes you know, the day before this starts, so I, I'm not convinced there'll be that much of the, the you know, cricketing world's uh, spotlight on this, which is a shame because it'll be great cricket, but also because, again, some of these performances will probably go unnoticed. And yeah, if JJ Smith hits 90 off 30 balls against uh, Sri Lanka and nobody sees it, did it really happen? <laughs> oh, geez, we're cynical, aren't we? We're cynics. What, what happened to us? <laughs> I know, I, I tend to disagree. I think that we'll be so hungry and everyone will be so hungry for cricket after what will hopefully be a competitive IPL final. Everyone will be that hungry to watch more cricket. They will jump on and watch the first round of the World Cup. And we know, and again, the cynic, speaking of of, of Tim Cutlerisms here, but <laughs> the idea of fantasy and, and, and gambling on cricket, I think there'll be plenty of people with, they'll be enticed by, you know, jumping in and, and watching some of these games as well. That's my hope. I think rather than having a bit of dead time in between, cricket to cricket, baby, let's go. Yeah, well, we do have a country of 160 million people playing in the first round of the cricket mad, so that helps. So yeah, I will flop more towards you there, Daniel, in that I think the world, or the cricketing world at least, is is desperate for some international tournament action like this. So hopefully, you know, the ICC with its new digital channel and everything it's doing there, which is, is good, hopefully it's promoted as, as well as it can be. I know in 2016, you know, despite them still putting the dugouts up the day before the, the first game, you know, there's a few takeovers of, you know, the various teams, including Hong Kong, of the social media channels and whatnot but you know we're, we're out of the olympics you know that it wouldn't have been the time to play it but um i'm hoping it'll get the interest it deserves some other news in the emerging game this week thailand have begun their tour of zimbabwe losing to the hosts in a 50 over match at the takashinga sports club by six wickets the teams play three more one day matches before a t20 international series in harare Jonty Rhodes has claimed a match victory in his first international assignment in charge of Sweden's men's team, with Denmark claiming the three-match series two games to one. Freddie Clocker returned as the skipper for the Danes, who won the decider by six wickets and with five balls to spare. Taranjit Baraj was adjudged player of the match for his knock of 63 not out from 46 balls. And finally, Rwanda's home men's T20i series with Ghana has begun in Kigali. The five-match series concludes on Saturday with the teams currently locked at one match apiece. That's everything in the Emerging Game this week. For more, log on to EmergingCricket.com. And coming up next, Nick sits down with Forbes' Tristan Lavalette. Hi, this is Anuradha Dotbalapur, the captain of the German women's team, and you're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. I'm joined today by Tristan Lavalette, a cricket journalist currently with Forbes, as well as writing for the AFP and the AAP. You keep a watchful eye on the comings and goings at the ICC headquarters, and so that's what we're talking about today. Welcome, Tristan. Yeah, thanks a lot, Nick, for having me. Now, there's been a lot of uh, administrative movement lately, but the biggest story most recently was probably that the ICC has finally endorsed a bid for getting cricket into the Olympics. So, firstly, can you explain what exactly does that mean from their end? You know, what will the ICC be doing now? Well, finally, they're all on the same page, which which helps because this has been an issue that's dragged on for years and years. I mean, I've been told that there was uh, discussions between the IOC uh, officials and ICC officials as far back as 2008 uh, Beijing Games. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's been going on forever. The IOC are pretty keen for cricket to be part of the games, mainly because of India and well, the subcontinent don't seem to have too much um, interest or they're not diehards into the Olympics, I guess, as compared to countries like Australia, for instance. And they're pretty keen to get the Olympics up and going and they've 
obviously showcasing new sports in Tokyo, trying to skew a bit younger, and they're hoping cricket can get there. But the last decade or so, cricket's basically just self-destructed as usual. A lot of self-interest, a lot of stonewalling. Typical ICC. <laughs> um, mainly India and, and England haven't uh, particularly been on board. But for whatever reason, they seem to be now. And um, they're finally united. And they're trying to get a bid into the LA Games 2028, which would be very beneficial for trying to get uh, US cricket up and going, which is obviously the the kind of goldmine of of cricket, isn't it? That's where the ICC administration and and chiefs want uh, the destination to develop because a lot of money there, of course. So could be a good period for American cricket. They've got their own T20 domestic league starting and 2026, most likely um, there would be the, the T20 World Cup there uh, along with the, the West Indies. So 2028 Olympics could be pretty, you know, pretty good time for Cricket America. So right now they finally announced that um, they got that working group looking into the Olympics bid which was actually formed about a year ago. I think I reported it last December, but yeah, it's taken them a long time to actually announce it. And of course, they've uh, done it during a prime Olympic fever. So trying to get the, the goodwill out there. Um, but it seems like everyone's on board. I think the fans want it. It seems to be the, the board want it. And now it's a process of trying to lobby the LA Games organising committee because it's up to them now to get sports in uh, for 2028. And I think the decision might have to be by the end of the year or early next year. And now cricket has to decide what format they want, how many teams they want. But it seems to be, from what I understand, T20 is the format that will be preferred by the ICC and, and eight teams per uh, men's and women's, even though some associates want a T10. But because of the, the lack of teams, it kind of makes sense that it's going to be T20 because their original thinking was if there's going to be uh, more games to be played over T10 format that potentially there could be more teams being played but with just the eight it looks like T20 is going to be the format so finally we might see cricket on the bigger stage maybe finally maybe yeah exactly (laughs) so you, you mentioned there were some objections from certain boards what were the main roadblocks standing in the way previously and and I guess, how did the ICC talk them around? Well, it seems to me that they basically just didn't want to potentially diminish the clout of their own domestic leagues. And especially England, in terms of the Olympics, would most likely be played during their summer. So potentially it was going to be a bit of a couple of weeks or whatever it is to clear out of the cricket calendar, assuming we're going to get all the best players to the Olympics, which seems to be what the ICC want. And I think the, the Indian cricket board, the, the BCCI, I think had a bit of a stoush with, the, with their Olympic committee and, and who's got control of the players and they want complete control as they usually do in, in matters. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think it's mainly come down to those two boards. Cricket Australia potentially in the past might not have also been amenable to it, but I think they've changed their tune for quite a while. So it's now come down basically to the, the BCCI and they have amazingly agreed to it. So um, it's now up to the ICC to get a move on because if a decision is going to be made by the end of the year, it's not much time left. So they've left it quite late. And I think they had their first, the working group had their first meeting just a week or two ago. I'm not sure why it's taken so long, maybe partly because it's changed a little bit. Again, Due to ICC politics, the actual group has changed since it was formed last year because originally Imran Kawaja, who was then chair, from what I've been told, he instigated this group, but he's now 
seemingly been left off the group. So, uh, of course, he lost the, the chairman uh, election with Greg Barclay, who has uh, put in uh, Ian Watmore, who looks like he's running the, the group now, and he seems to be a bit of a, a right-hand man to Barclay on board matters. He's, he's sort of, uh, his influence has grown a bit. And uh, Mahinda Valapuram from Malaysia is now on board, who, according to Indian media voted for, for Barclay over Kawhi during the election. So he may be, he's been rewarded for it. But he also does have some Olympic experience being, I think, part of the Malaysian Olympic Committee in some senior role, I think. So perhaps he's, you know, you could argue that he probably should have been on the group in the first place. But again, there's a lot of politics and, and favoritism even getting into a group like this. So it's all been a bit of a shambles, I think. But finally, it's in place and let's uh, hopefully they get moving. Well, hopefully they can uh, they can get it over the line because I think we all agree that that would be one of the best things to happen to cricket's development. Um, but moving on to some more of the uh, you know, turning over some rocks and, and looking at the the little bugs that are crawling around. Uh, we we recently saw the chief executive committee elections. Now, for our listeners who don't know, can you just briefly outline what the CEC is and 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 what they do? Yeah, well, that's also a bit hard to define. But, but um, <laughs> So basically, the CEC is the Chief Executives Committee. So it sits the 12 CEOs from the four members, plus three from the associate world. And officially, they're meant to govern and regulate the sport. Um, but it seems to be, from what I can gather, it just seems to be another kind of, you know, exclusive club and um, which cricket loves those, uh, you know, <laughs> member, member club only and, and uh, with the big wigs. So they seem to basically get together these days. They get together over Zoom, not, not in the plush hotels and bars like they used to. How disappointing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why the AGM recently last month was a bit of a fizzer. So <laughs> I think um, in past years, they used to gather in five-star hotels and go to the best places and do a lot of sightseeing. But uh, these days, it's just on Zoom and I think a lot of them can't be bothered attending these days. But anyway, um, <laughs> so basically um, the CEC is an opportunity for, I guess, the, the big wigs to get together and go through the, the main issues that um, the ICC put forward. And they usually give a bit of feedback and, and perhaps their own um, determination on, on certain issues. And then it goes to the board who ultimately have the power and they're the ones who vote on whether things get through or not. But the CEC does offer, I guess, feedback on issues. But from an associate point of view, it's seen as um, quite important to get on the CEC. It's a lot of clout and being rubbing shoulders with the top people in cricket, the top CEOs, um, that means something. And it's also seen as a stepping stone to get onto the board itself, uh, which is, as we know, that's where the, the real power in cricket is. So it's, it's quite important to get onto the CEC. So that's why the recent elections were quite fierce. Yeah, it's it's basically is an important thing, even though most people probably don't know much about it. And it's still a little bit murky to what they actually do. So the results came in a couple of weeks ago now, and there was a bit of a shake-up with uh, Samod Damodar of Botswana returned to the role, but joined by two first-timers in Rashpal Bajwa of Canada and uh, Mubashir Usmani of the UAE. Tell us a bit about the three winners and what they sort of uh, are planning to do with the role. 
Well, Sumod Damador from Botswana, he's been there for a while and he's seen as a bit, uh, I guess you could say a little bit brash, but he's basically had the support from the Africa region, which uh, Uganda's Bashir and Sasara didn't have. He was just fairly new. He just got in um, in a by-election earlier this year. He actually beat um, Betty Timmer from the Netherlands in a bit of a shock result, actually. But it's seen as a little bit of a, maybe a, bit of a power play in terms of the bigger associations now have a bit more of a voice on the CEC with UAE might have cemented a little bit of power because they have been sort of fighting with or battling a couple other associate nations in terms of being that neutral venue, that sort of second, the backup option in cricket, especially for Afghanistan and, and previously Pakistan with Malaysia and Oman have been trying to steal their turf, I guess, in that regard. But the UAE now have seemed to have established themselves um, as a as the preferred backup option in cricket, and they've seemed to have uh, got the ear of the BCCI. So that's why uh, IPL has been played at the UAE, and the T20 World Cup is mainly going to be played at the UAE. So Ismani is someone who is seen as a bit of a rising, influential player in cricket uh, boardrooms in, in the backdrop. So he's he's someone to look out for. And um, Bajwa from Canada came as not really a surprise, but originally people thought that because of the USA's growing influence that Ian Higgins may have gone for it, but he didn't. So Bajwa probably represents, I guess, a North American influence. And um, the ICC's uh, desire to really get cricket up and going in North America, obviously, mainly the US, but Canada too. So, yeah, a bit of a change of dynamics on the CEC. And the election was um, quite interesting because beforehand there had been a bit of a power play from top associate nations who want more uh, representation on the board and the CEC. So that has caused a few divisions, I guess, in the associate world or a little bit of concern, I guess you could say. So just on that sort of power play you, you talked about you know, it feeds into a, the kind of fault lines within the emerging or associate cricket grouping uh, with the, as you said, the higher ranked members trying to gain a bit more influence uh, sort of at the expense of the, the smaller nations, which I mean, <laughs> that, that kind of dynamic is something we've seen uh, at the full member level as well. Tell us a bit about that conflict and what are the key demands of both sides? So there's basically um, 10 so-called top-performing associate nations, US, Canada, uh, UAE, uh, Netherlands, Scotland, amongst some others, and they basically believe because they generate a fair bit of you know, the, the revenue and uh, growth of, of cricket globally that they think they should be rewarded for that by representation on, on the board and, and also the CEC because there's six positions for associate directors across the board in the CEC, but until this recent CEC election, they didn't have any. And they believe that there's a bit of a bias against them from the associate world because they're big and powerful. So obviously, the some of the smaller nations are concerned about that, that their interests aren't going to be represented by the big countries. So there is a little bit of a push and pull on the issue I believe Tony Bryan from Scotland who was just recently on the board is um, quite heavily involved in getting this up and about but I have been told that it's still very uh, early in the sort of conception of the idea and maybe that now that there's been a couple of, of the these big nations now on the CEC so maybe it might have appeased them a little bit but they believe basically they're not getting 
the big nations believe they're not really haven't been getting properly um, rewarded for for promoting and developing cricket globally. I guess. Well, it sort of it seems to me like there's a couple of approaches to development that are in tension here. You know, either there's you know, more reward for the high performing teams and you know sort of help them to push into the top ten range and make the case for associates by just essentially being really good and and pressuring the full members, winning matches at tournaments, just generally you know being hard to ignore. And and that's essentially how Ireland and Afghanistan got to full membership, right? They they just through sheer weight of performances and, and banging the door down. And you know on the other end there's the much smaller countries like, you know, for example, maybe Botswana, who rarely make it past the first rounds of regional qualifying and you know, their argument is that they need more support to get better and raise the standard from the bottom as well. Is that sort of a fair summary of the two kind of sides of this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's 90 plus associate members and it's so diverse and then some of the top nations, I mean, they're trying to become full members. They're trying to become even test playing nations. Whereas you've got some of the smaller associate members are just trying to merely survive and trying to get enough money just for cricket to survive in their countries. So there's just such a broad spectrum of members and even on it's a smaller snapshot, but it's a similar situation on the board itself. I mean, there's so many different interests and you've got the big three countries on the board who've got billion-dollar TV rights deals, whereas some of the smaller four members have almost bankrupt. So it's um, there's just such a difference in heft and, uh, I, I guess, agendas and, and, and what's important to um, to each member that it's very hard to try to find common ground, I think. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. Um, we've got one other piece of news from Dubai, and it's a little bit older, about a month ago now. The former CEO Manu Sawney was pushed out in somewhat murky circumstances with eighteen months left on his contract. Um, well, I, I say pushed out, but the official statement was that he left, and that he that was after he was already on leave, while there was an internal investigation into his managerial style. So. There's definitely more going on. Are you able to uh, shed some light on the on the skullduggery here? Yeah, uh, or try. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was a uh, PwC report commissioned, I think, late last year, basically looking, apparently, looking into the work culture of the ICC. Now, Sawney and his supporters basically think that was a witch hunt and premeditated um, move just to get rid of him. Now, yeah, he was put on. Uh, that the findings were basically meant that he was put on leave for a few months until it was investigated. But what is interesting is that the PwC report wasn't distributed to all the board members. So it seems to have only been distributed to a few of them closest to Barclay. And I've been told that the reason he gave why it wasn't given to all the board men- members was that more board directors was that he was concerned of leaks, which is a little bit ironic considering the whole saga leaked in the Indian press to an outlet that's quite favourable to the BCCI. But <laughs> anyway, so that was a, a bit ironic. But basically, he claims, Sawney claims that it was a witch hunt and they just tried to get him and the findings of the PwC report would never come out. It's pretty much, we don't know exactly what he has done. He just claims that the findings said that he had done things like slam the desk and he was brash and abrasive. But obviously, um, I mean, whether that's a fireable event, I'm not not sure about that, but uh, CEOs are quite known to be, uh, you know, probably (laughs) brash and uh, 
um, hard-headed. So I don't know if that's any different to most CEOs in the world. But again, we... Oh, it's, it's different to Tim. Come on. Oh, Tim Carl. Yeah, he's, he's a bit different, but, you know, <laughs> he, he's, he's a red breed. So um, I, I, I prefer his style of, uh, you know, being in a pub and uh, having meetings there, which I assume he does. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, so it went to an emergency board meeting and the report was finally dished out to all the board members, board directors, uh, just hours before the meeting. But I've been told some didn't even read it. And uh, yeah, it, it kind of has split the board, I think. Well, the divisions have been further cemented, I, I guess you could say. And there's a bit of an air of mistrust why there hasn't been enough transparency over their issue and the processes involved. And uh, as far as I'm aware, Sawney has appealed and I think it's just going through the typical um, mud of the lawyers and the ICC just hoping it gets in the backdrop and no one talks about it ever again because <laughs> it basically hasn't been, hasn't been raised since about uh, the day after they, they released a, I think a 30-word media release and that's it. So I think Sawney would be probably trying to get a settlement out of it and that's probably that. So from reading between the lines, I'd say it's just my own viewpoint, but it seems like the uh, big three, especially India, would have wanted to uh, regain the control on the ICC and the board, which they've been trying to get since, since Manaha. So removing um, Sawney was probably the right move since he was a bit... Uh, he wanted to go a different direction to what's been the sort of status quo with getting more events in and countries bidding for, for ICC events. But look, it's, it's quite murky. And uh, to be fair, it seems like the big three or, or certainly India have got more control. They seem to be a little bit more uh, willing to compromise as we're seeing the eight events for 2023, 2031 actually remained in place. And, and now the Olympics bid is going forward. So there seems to have been a little bit more of a, you know, willingness to to be a little bit more inclusive rather than just what happened in 2014 with that, that takeover, which I think even they realised was such a, a disastrous look for them and took years for them to recover from that um, they shouldn't go down that path anymore. But that's just what I'm sort of uh, reading into it. So I think um, Sawney seems to have been a, made a casualty, but we'll probably never know the, the full story unless someone has can give us access to that report, I think. Yeah, well, there was this PricewaterhouseCoopers report, as you said, which, uh, of course, has not been made public. Uh, it labelled his managerial style problematic, I, I believe, in some of the stuff that's sort of uh, filtered out. Uh, and there's definitely been rumblings that you know, we at Emerging Cricket have heard from you know, some discontent coming out of the ICC employees. So, how much smoke do you think is there and how much do you think there's actual fire? I'm really not sure. I mean, look, even Sawney's own supporters or people a bit more favourable to him do admit that he is quite brash. So whether or not that means that he overstepped the, the line in his role or he's just difficult to work with, I mean, it's hard to, to know. I mean, we've all worked in offices before and there's people you just don't like, but it doesn't mean that they should be fired necessarily. So I'm really not sure. I'm sure he was um, probably quite prickly and, and probably difficult to work with. But at the same time, he also was much more commercially minded and not just looking at the big three and, and lining up their pockets. So that probably also um, didn't go down too well with the big three either. So look, it's you can see kind of 
both sides. I mean, I've been in contact with people from both sides as well. So they, they tell you different things. So it's hard to, to really know. Uh, would be nice if we ever could get that PwC report released publicly <laughs> to see what was happening. I mean, Swanee claims that there was much more in that than just about him. So it would have been interesting to, to know exactly what he's referring to. But there has been quite a lot of silence actually amongst um, sort of insiders and close people close to the board since that issue. So I think they've been told to, uh, you know, be tight-lipped on the issue. And like I said, it seems to be going through lawyers. So yeah, it might be something we never hear about ever again, which is exactly what the ICC want. <laughs> um and I mean, that's, it's not the first time that Sony has left a gig with a, a cloud of accusations from unhappy workers. Uh, a previous appointment at the Singapore Sports Hub saw him resign after being put on leave, where have we heard this before, following complaints uh, about his treatment of staff as well. So, you know, if you're the ICC, shouldn't that have set off some red flags in the first place? Or, or was it kind of a, a case of who you know, since um, I, I believe he's quite close to the previous chairman, uh, Shashank Manahar? That's that's right. I mean, again, there's lots of questions that should be put to the ICC, but they're not um, not always the best in responding. So it looks like they've made uh, they basically said they're going to make no comment on this issue for the time being. I, I don't think they ever will, to be honest. So yeah, there's, there's lots of murky things with this story from both sides. I mean, I'm not saying one's right or one's not right. There's a lot of smoke there. There's lots of shady things going on. It is, but basically it's quite evident that there is a deep split in the board. And maybe to be fair to to Barclay, um, maybe you just can never unite this board. Maybe they're just so broken and forever will be because of the self-interest involved, the different agendas like we've talked earlier. It's it's such a difference between what the big three want or need compared to smaller four members. So maybe this can never, ever be um, totally united and we're never going to get a a functioning board. But to be fair, they do seem to have um, done a few things that have been welcomed by the cricket community in terms of finally increasing the number of teams and in the T20 World Cup and the ODI World Cup, even though it should be far more, but a step in the right direction and, and this Olympic bit as well. So it seems like there is at least uh, a push to finally be a little bit more inclusive and globalise this sport finally. Now, I would, um, in the interests of fairness, hasten to add that uh, Sony has vehemently denied uh, wrongdoing both in the Singapore case and, and, in, and in this instance. Um, but just looking, you, you talked about the big three, you know, the, the implication seems to be that the big three sort of pushed him out. One of the hallmarks of his time in charge was a, a cost-cutting drive as well as some plans to host a bunch more tournaments and, and boost the revenues. This was unpopular with the big three boards. So what's the conflict here? You know, do they not like money? <laughs> well, they uh, no, they they love money, but they want uh, more than that. They want uh, their own domestic tournaments and domestic uh, leagues to basically rake in all the money, not the ICC. And they want pretty much all the ICC events to to be in their countries, as it has been for this current cycle that we're in. And it looks like finally the next cycle, it's going to be shared around a little bit more. As I said earlier, it appears that the US and and the Caribbean are probably going to host, I think, the 2026 T20 World Cup most likely. And and there's a few um, interesting bids as well. So it's an opportunity, I think, for the game to really... You know, this era coming up, I think 
could be quite defining for the sport. And that's why it is important to get this board united and actually functioning properly because potentially the next decade could be really, really exciting. By the end of the next cycle, 2031, I mean, we could have seen cricket by then already in the Olympics. We could have seen some of the big World Cups, the big events in cricket being played in some different countries, not just India, England and Australia. Uh, We could have seen development of countries outside the four members. The associate world hopefully grows a bit bit more and becomes a little bit easier maybe to become an associate member. It's quite strict at the moment. And so I think it's a real defining period, the next, well, certainly the next few years and definitely the next decade. So Let's just hope we get um, the board at least somewhat functioning, which we know they probably never will totally, but as long as there's some concessions given and a bit more of a focus beyond their own self-interest would be nice, but we know that can be difficult. Well, Tristan, that's a surprisingly positive note you've you've hit there. Um, I, so, uh, I think that's actually a, a pretty good place to leave it. Uh, this, it's been enlightening and, um, you know, not completely depressing, so that's nice. Um, thanks a lot for your time and uh, for, for guiding us through some of the, the murky corridors of power at the ICC. No worries. Anytime you want uh, the mood to be uh, uplifted a little bit, I'm hoping to help, but I can't guarantee that. So. <laughs> Let's see. Let's let's hope the uh, ICC board and the ICC um, surprise us in the next few months to round out 2021. That would be ideal. Thanks a lot, Tristan. Yeah. Thanks again to Tristan Lavalette for joining us on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. For more, follow Emerging Cricket wherever you are on social media and sign up to our Patreon for exclusive content like an extended version of the very episode you've just heard. For now, on behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner, and myself, Daniel Beswick, we'll see you next week. Yeah!